This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can follow Berkeley Talks wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us today at our 2023 Gender Forum. My name is Ann Peters, and I'm visiting from Washington, D.C., so it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I am the University and Community Outreach Director for the Pulitzer Center, which is a journalism and education organization, a global organization. And we are pleased to have organized this forum today with our wonderful partners here at the Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. We at the Pulitzer Center uh, greatly appreciate this partnership that through the years has produced a range of community programs and offered reporting opportunities for students here. Key among all of that is our shared commitment to the field of journalism and to supporting the most impactful stories of our times. I believe we, the Pulitzer Center and the Graduate School, are both eager to expand the impact of journalism by preparing the next generations of diverse journalists to become excellent fact finders and storytellers. And I want to thank our Berkeley Journalism and our Pulitzer Center colleagues for working diligently to organize today's forum, of which this is the first of two sessions. One of my greatest pleasures working with the Pulitzer Center and with our wonderful academic partners is bringing together journalists and scholars, practitioners and policy experts to share their knowledge and to seek solutions in community to some of the most critical issues of the day. And it's wonderful to know today, too, that we have both community members and the first-year class of Berkeley's graduate journalism students. So thank you for, for being together with us. And I hope that our students today will take away ideas on how they might, through their own reporting, shed light on aspects of often underreported issues, including on those we are discussing today whether in your own reporting in the years ahead or perhaps a plug for the Pulitzer Center uh, Berkeley Reporting Fellowship. More on that at a later date. Um, as another way to continue our learning together, please you'll see around the room and outside a QR code um, that we hope you will take a look at and you can share additional thoughts that you might have on other programs we can organize together. One other point uh, for those to know about the second session that'll be later this, this um, day for a conversation between Dean Gita Anand and from the Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times, who also herself is a Berkeley Journalism alum as some of you already know that, and also a former Pulitzer Center grantee. Now on to our first forum session, which we've titled Failure to Protect, How to Help Survivors of Sex Trafficking. And we brought the panel that we have here today together to focus on this issue because sex trafficking can appear invisible if we don't know where to look and what to look for. 
Many individuals move through hotels and motels, emergency rooms, and transit hubs. And we thought, how could doctors, nurses, police officers, hotel operators, all of us, inform ourselves and do more to protect survivors? Where should we look for the intersections on this issue across our social systems? I am mindful that portions of this conversation might have triggering content, and I want to acknowledge that before you, but before we begin. So please feel free to step outside if you need to, to take care of yourself. Now I'd like to introduce our panel. Holly Joshi is the director of the Center for Social Justice at Glide and a nationally recognized expert on gender-based violence prevention and intervention. She was the executive director of MISI, a direct service organization that supports trafficked youth. Isabella Gomes is a public health journalist, infectious diseases epidemiologist, and currently a medical student at Washington University in St. Louis. She is a former Pulitzer Center reporting fellow as well as a grantee. Her work with the Pulitzer Center included publication of her article, Healthcare Providers Are Missing Chances to Help Victims of Sex Trafficking. And Bernice Young is a managing editor of Berkeley Journalism's investigative reporting program and a former ProPublica reporter. Her recently published article in The New Yorker it's titled, Should Hotel Chains Be Held Liable for Human Trafficking? And our moderator for today, Professor Nikki Jones, the H. Michael and Jean Williams Department Chair of African American Studies here at Berkeley. She conducted the federally funded study, Experience of Youth in the Sex Trade in the Bay Area. And now, Professor Jones. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to everyone uh, for being here today. I'm honored to be at the table uh, for this conversation and thrilled that we have so many uh, students in the room. Uh, I want to start with a question. I want to begin by inviting each of you to share a bit more about yourself with the audience, who you are, the work that you do, and your relationship uh, to the issue of sex trafficking. Uh, and if you can, I'd like you to help the audience make the distinction between terms like sex trafficking, CSEC, prostitution, and sex work, and why those distinctions matter for the work you do. Hi, I'm Holly Joshi. Thanks, everyone, for coming in the middle of your week, in the middle of your day. I really appreciate you being here, and always a pleasure to be with you, Dr. Nikki. So I came to this work through the police department. In 2001, yes, I'm showing my age, I went to the Oakland Police Academy, um, as a very non-traditional police officer, having been born and raised in Oakland um, and uh, in an urban environment and exposed to the negative impacts of policing in my family um, during the war on drugs. But I went and I joined the police department as a 23-year-old, really believing that I was going to mend all of the ills and, and relationships between my community and the police department. And very quickly, I was lured into undercover work because I was young. I didn't look like a police officer, all of the things that you all can imagine. Um, and the police department at that time was 90% men, very few women and very, very few women of color and black women. So I was taken in to focus on um, violent crime undercover work. 
and uh, disrupting, uh, you know, guns being sold in Oakland, et cetera, et cetera. And one day I was walking through the hallway getting off work, actually, after a 12-hour shift, and a sergeant asked me to work as an undercover prostitute, is what he said at the time, um, for an undercover operation on International Boulevard. For those of you from Oakland know that International Boulevard is really a notorious open-air sex trafficking market, and it runs from the lake all the way to the San Leandro border. So we were going to be standing at 17th Avenue and International that particular evening, and I didn't want to do it. But uh, there was one other female police officer that was signed up to do it, and her partner had called in sick. And so without a, a, a trained female police officer who had gone to the undercover school, they weren't going to be able to hold the operation. So I decided to just do it for the night. They gave me a really tiny miniskirt and glass heels that lit up when I walked. <laughs> and I stood out at 17th Ave- Avenue and International with about 20 cops on corners uh, within a four-block radius to back me up, and we started the undercover operation. And mind you, I'd been doing undercover work at this point for a few years, and as I said, I'd been doing it focused on violent uh, crimes in Oakland. So I didn't think that this was going to be very intense. I'm like, I don't even know why we're focusing on prostitution. It's a misdemeanor. It's consenting adults, and I'm not really interested in this work. But I'm going to do a favor. And I had a complete disorienting dilemma as I was doing the work. The first thing that happened was that the way that the pimps and exploiters were ruling the track was actually frightening. They were extremely violent. They were coming out of cars with pit bulls. They were shooting guns off out windows, et cetera, um, to scare the women. It was women. um, To scare the women that were working, you know, on the street corner. And about two hours into the shift, I looked across the street and saw 14-year-old girls and realized in that moment that I'm playing pretend and I have a badge and a gun and I'm a full-grown trained adult with backup on all of the four corners and these are children and, and young girls that look like me, that this is their real life and there's no one to protect them. The theme of our conversation, failure to protect um, and no one's looking for them. So that completely changed the course of my career. And for the next decade uh, inside the police department, I became an advocate focused on changing local and state policy to actually recognize the victimization of what was mainly young girls of color in Oakland. So that was my start into trafficking, and that was around 2004. And to your other question, I'll, I'll briefly respond to the differences between you know, sex trafficking and, and um, CSEC, which is commercial sexual exploitation of children, prostitution, and sex work. I think it's a really important question because all of us that have been in the work know that sex work and sex trafficking are often conflated in conversations, and it starts to get, it can get really ugly in terms of the discussion and, and the debate. And so clearly, sex work involves consenting adults and folks that are really choosing to do what they're choosing to do. I mean, there's not coercion involved in it. There's not, um, you know, uh, threats of violence, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, sex work in and of itself can is obviously still dangerous, but just in terms of the entry points and the day-to-day decision-making to engage in that as a profession belongs to the individual. And so um, I think that's the difference. Sex trafficking is, is really coercion, um, and we can get into a little bit more about how that coercion can look sometimes, but it's really about force, fear, or coercion. And then obviously when we're talking about children, 
Um, we worked really hard for years for California state law to recognize that children can't actually be sex workers um, because for so many years we had statutory rape laws on the books that said that children couldn't consent to sex with adults, but the minute 5 or 25 or $105 exchanged hands, California state legislation got very confused and young people were being taken to the juvenile hall and arrested for uh, their own uh, victimization. And so I think it's really important to make that distinction because those of us in the work, like I said, in the early 2000s, began that push for legislation to change the way that California actually saw and treated children. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You can clap. Yes, you can clap. Yeah. Sorry, can everyone hear me? Good. Um, so the way that I first came into sex trafficking um, as a topic for, uh, actually it started out with my journalism thesis, so I know a lot of you guys are probably working on things like that right now, um, was I've always thought whenever we move something into the healthcare space, then it becomes sort of this universal topic that everyone has an access point to talk about it. We have this common ground. And so for so long I was trying to find a topic that meant something to me and I felt like trafficking was one of those issues where it is the extreme of every social and structural determinant of health, right? Like people who are struggling with access to healthcare, struggling um, within food apartheid, dealing with things like housing instability, um, undocumented immigrants, uh, people of color. It is the people who experience the worst social support who are struggling within this country. I felt like trafficking would be a way for me to show, to show people that we need to pay attention to sexual violence as a public health issue, that this is not a law enforcement issue, this is not a, just a criminal justice issue, that this is a health violation, this is a human rights violation. And to me, being able to talk about things like sex trafficking and labor trafficking was just a very, um, it's, it's an issue in this country that people often think doesn't happen here, right? Whenever you see any images on Google, when you type if, if you type in sex trafficking, you see an image of a South Asian, a Southeast Asian, East Asian woman bound in the corner of a basement. And that's the imagery that we have. It's highly stylized. It's very sensationalized. And that myth narrows our point of view of who is at risk for sex trafficking. And for me, I felt like this was an opportunity to dispel that myth, to reintroduce complexity into that discussion, and to use the lens of public health, of individual health care, to talk about why this matters and that it's happening in the U.S. And so that was one reason why I was really motivated to write about it. Also as a queer woman of color, um, also an immigrant, um, as a survivor of sexual assault and physical violence, um, to me that this was, this was an issue that I felt like I would be able to find people who could speak um, very authentically from this experience, but also be able to talk to healthcare providers, talk to people in law enforcement, talk to lawyers about what their thoughts were and bring that all together. And so the story that I was focusing on was how healthcare providers were really missing chances to respond to issues of sex trafficking. Um, it actually all came back to this one study um, in the Annals of Health Law back in 2014 where they found that up to 88% of trafficked victims had seen a healthcare provider 
while they were being trafficked. Despite that, less than 5% of uh, healthcare providers said that they had ever identified a victim of sex trafficking. Less than 3% of emergency department physicians said they were even trained to identify um, sex trafficking victims. Less than 2% of 6,000 hospitals in the U.S. had any sort of guidelines on what to do once a survivor of sex trafficking was identified. And I'm in medical school now. We have not learned anything about it. In residency programs, you don't learn anything about it. And these women were being seen in, sorry, when I say women, I'm also actually including children, as we've discussed, and also men, queer people, um, people of different backgrounds. Everyone can be potentially at risk, but um, largely the people that I talked to were women. Um, they were being seen in the emergency departments. They were being seen in OB-GYN clinics, but they were also being seen in pediatric clinics. They were seen in orthopedics. They were seen in dentist's office. So there were so many opportunities for them to be identified, and this just wasn't happening. Um, and I think what I got really frustrated with by was like every time I looked at um, some sort of journalism piece about sex trafficking. It was always like, oh, right after the Super Bowl, there was like this huge sting, this huge raid, and then we apprehended and caught the perpetrators. And I was like, what are we doing for victims? Like, yes, I understand that law enforcement and criminal justice have their role, but what happens later? What do we do to sort of deal with the long-term medical, sexual health, mental health implications of the abuse that these people have endured for literally decades at a time from childhood. And so um, I started looking into those health issues, partnered with a lot of advocacy organizations, including Missy, actually. Um, and uh, we started talking about the health issues. And just to reiterate what Anne said, like um, a lot of things I might discuss will have uh, I just want to put a content warning out there because I am talking about the health manifestations of um, violence and abuse. So if you need to, please feel free to take care of yourself, leave, um, anything like that. Um, but the things that I started to learn was that it's not just limited to sexual health issues. I was seeing so many physical manifestations of violence. For example, there was there were people who I saw who had TMJ, so like the jaw injuries, there were cervical spine injuries from oral sex. There was um, many women who had lumbar lordosis, so that's like a lower back injury from wearing high heels chronically. Um, there was this one woman that I met who, um, she was forced to use a makeup sponge instead of a tampon, and that ended up causing toxic shock syndrome. Um, there were women, uh, oftentimes because of recurrent sexual assault, you are also at higher risk for recurrent UTIs. That UTI then moves up ureters into your kidneys, and now you have kidney failure or sepsis, right? So there are so many manifestations that you might not immediately think about with something like sexual abuse, especially chronic and recurrent sexual abuse. And I really wanted to write a story that looked at this expanse that brought the complexity back to the conversation to say there is no definitive image of what a sex trafficking survivor looks like. There is no definitive um, medical manifestation presentation that this looks like. Um, and so this was an incredible way for me to talk to both survivors of sex trafficking as well as healthcare providers and figure out what those gaps were. Hi, everyone. I'm Bernice Yearing. I'm the managing editor at the Investigative Reporting Program, where we like to focus on stories that hold power to account. Um, and so 
uh, when I think about how I got into covering trafficking, it was actually all the way back in 2004. Um, it was because um, I became aware of a case of a domestic worker from, the, um, from Africa who had been brought by actually a journalist um, to the United States to live in Palo Alto, California, um, and had, was essentially trapped, uh, passport taken away, um, working incredibly long hours, never given any rest, and um, just had incredibly unrealistic expectations placed on her. Um, you know, we understand now sex uh, trafficking to be a form of modern-day slavery, and it just um, blew my mind that right here in Palo Alto, California, there could be modern-day slavery. So my journey in uh, journalism covering uh, trafficking continued. I kind of um, began looking at sex trafficking, um, did a couple stories about sex trafficking in San Francisco, one of them about um, young people who were, who were being forced to, into prostitution and getting caught up in the criminal justice system, as Holly noted, um, back in the mid-2000s. And I think at that point, we didn't understand it as trafficking. Um, in fact, I think this, the headline says something about underage prostitutes. Um, so we've really seen kind of the conversation change, and I, we've seen the legislation and the law change over time. I think what's really interesting to track as someone covering trafficking is that it's an incredibly bipartisan issue in a moment where we have such deep rifts politically. It's an issue that every, pretty much everybody can get behind. And um, so we've seen bipartisan efforts year after year to strengthen the Trafficking Victim Protection Act. Um, so in 2003, for example, they strengthened it to make it possible for, um, for tra uh, trafficking survivors themselves to bring a lawsuit against their trafficker. And then in 2008, they further strengthened it to allow them to um, sue anybody who has uh, essentially uh, knowingly benefited from their trafficking. And that's kind of at the crux of the story that I did most recently, looking at hotel franchisers and big chains um, and asking this question, should they be held responsible? Looking at the law, you know, are they responsible? Um, so it's been fascinating to kind of come full circle on this issue. Um, since, um, I, you know, I know there's some journalists in the group and journalism students, um, I hope you'll humor me with some of the backstory and the kind of tradecraft behind putting this story together. But um, I started on the story uh, because the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ, they were convening a bunch of journalists to put together stories related to trafficking, um, both labor and sex trafficking. It's called Trafficking Inc. You can look it up. Um, some really great stories coming out of there related to uh, trafficking on U.S. military bases. There was a story that just came out about trafficking, labor trafficking in McDonald's and Chuck E. Cheese franchises in uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, so unfortunately, the, tra the issue is um, ongoing and urgent. Um, worldwide. Um, so I started in on this story thinking I was actually going to do a story on uh, nurses who were being trafficked to the United States. Um, and then I got scooped. <laughs> uh, so I had to kind of pivot. And an editor that I was working with said, hey, I've been looking at this database um, for all the journalists out there. It's called the Courthouse News Database. It's not exactly easy to get a hold of, but one of the great things about it is you can actually keyword search a number of um, lawsuits, which is a very difficult thing to do, as you all know. There's no centralized database. Um, but what kept popping up was that hotels were getting sued. And not just hotels, but hotel franchisers. We're talking the Marriott's of the world, the Hilton's, the Wyndham's, etc. So this editor said, well, why don't you just kind of poke around and see what's happening here? And what was really startling was that beginning in 2019, 
there was just this complete uptick in these lawsuits filed against um, uh, by survivors against these major hotel corporations. So at, uh, as of this summer, there were about 110 of these lawsuits being filed. Um, about half of them are ongoing. Uh, Twelve of them uh, had resulted in settlements, some of them, um, you know, million-dollar-plus settlements. And some of them, some of them, because this is a new area of law, were, uh, were uh, you know, terminated by the court. But they are an ongoing case, and there's still a, a lot of rich conversation happening around who should be held accountable in these cases. And, you know, why look at hotels? I think a really important um, nexus point is that uh, according to Polaris, which is an anti-trafficking organization, um, a survey that they conducted in 2018 of people who called into their hotline, you know, um, some 60% of, of people who had been trafficked said that they had been trafficked at some point at a hotel. And then you look at um, you look at the criminal cases that have been prosecuted by the federal government, and almost half involve a hotel at some point. So it is, if we're interested in interventions and moments where we can start to have some impact, I think, you know, those types of, uh, you know, nexus points are important to look at. Um, furthermore, kind of in terms of how did, how did I go about reporting this story, um, you know, I say a lot, and I know some of the students I work with are here, um, I always say you have to look at the macro and you have to look at the micro. So to look at the macro story, I uh, did the painstaking work of reading every single one of those 110-plus um, lawsuits that were filed against um, the hotel corporations. Um, I did that by, by um, using a database that the Human Trafficking Legal Center puts together. They do the painstaking work of collecting all of these cases. And then I went through all of those you know, hundreds of cases to filter out the ones that involved hotel corporations, read them all, sorted them, put them into a spreadsheet so that I could understand what was actually happening on a big picture level. And then in terms of the micro, you know, of course, there's no story without, without humans, without people, without understanding the human impact of why this all matters. Um, I was able to focus on um, a, a young woman that we call Elizabeth in the New Yorker story. And the way that I came across her is, um, again, all of those lawyers that were filing those lawsuits, um, some of them uh, wanted to talk to me and some really did not. And um, one of the ones that really did not want to talk to me <laughs> actually handled this case. But what they did do was notify me that this case existed. So I uh, did a deep dive into this case, and what's really interesting about these lawsuits and what I find very challenging sometimes about doing these stories where you know in your gut that there's such an important story to tell, um, but nobody wants you to tell it. So with, with these lawsuits, everything's filed under seal. Nobody wants you to look at what's actually happening at these hotels. So... Um, there was a very fortuitous, uh, journalistically speaking, um, situation that happened, which was in Elizabeth's case, there was an insurance um, company that countersued because they didn't they countersued the um, hotel because they didn't want to pay the legal fees um, for defending this company. So in that lawsuit, the insurance company lawyer filed a bunch of those records that I would normally not be able to see. Um, they realized the mistake pretty quickly, and they sealed them up again, but I was able to get to them before they were resealed. And so when you look at those, you get this kind of startling and really fascinating picture 
um, that I think offers some really unique insights into how the industry operates and its efforts around trafficking. So what we saw, for instance, was that um, in this case, it was a Days Inn hotel, um, and they're owned by Wyndham, um, which is a mega franchising hotel corporation. And they, um, they receive every single complaint to a centralized line. They know every time somebody is upset about you know, breakfast being cold, the sheets being dirty. And in this instance, they knew that this particular day's in, in Marietta, Georgia, um, had chronic safety and health problems. I mean, there were situations where people were banging on the door in the middle of the night. There were people walking into people's rooms uh, somehow with a key. Um, so they knew that there were concerns there. Um, there was also some emails back and forth um, in these files between um, the days in worldwide president and the ex an executive at Wyndham um, Corporation where they talked about this arrest of underage um, prostitutes that uh, was creating a public relations issue. Um, and what's really startling about this particular hotel is that when I, I wrote about Elizabeth, she was 17 at the time um, of, that all of this happened. She was among those arrested. So she, if I th I'm sure we will have a conversation about how a lot of survivors are being criminalized in this process as part of the response, but Elizabeth was one of them. So um, there was a 15-year-old that was also being trafficked in this um, same hotel by the same traffickers, and Elizabeth, uh, when the police were called, she was booked. Her mugshot is all over the Internet, um, and she herself was trafficked. Um, so Elizabeth, uh, you know, so what's startling about all of this, too, is that in addition to this very arrest, just five months earlier, there had been another arrest at this very same hotel for underage sex trafficking. And so this, there's this question again, should the corporation be responsible? Should the hotel be responsible? Who's responsible here? So um, I guess I'll just kind of close by saying that Elizabeth... Um, you know, was was a really incredible and powerful voice for this story. Um, I'm I'm eager to you know talk more about what it's like to um, interact as a journalist with sources of this uh, type. But she was, I think, in a really great place where she was ready to unpack a lot of this and was doing a lot of really powerful work um, herself uh, to be ready and willing to talk about it. And I think one of the most satisfying things for me as a reporter was when I sent her the link to the story, um, she texted me back and she said, it's amazing to see my story written out this way instead of how it was when I was arrested. <clears throat> Thanks. Thank you. And, and, and yes, we are, we're going to have a chance to go a little bit deeper in our responses in the audience. We'll have a chance uh, for questions as well um, toward the, the end. So, you know, a cross-cutting theme uh, of, your, of your work is clearly vulnerability, and vulnerability that is constructed by uh, multiple system failures and intersecting system failures. Um, so the title of our panel today is Failure to Protect, How to Help Survivors of Sex Trafficking. And in your work, each of you highlight multiple failures, both within and across systems, the criminal justice system, medical systems, private industries, system of capitalism, right? I'd like each of you to talk a bit more about what failure to protect means to you, and the particular form of failures your, your work exposes and, and confronts. And, and Holly, I'd like you to start 
Um, I know that you can help us to think about failure at the intersections of race and age and gender and class, and this shows up in, in each of the stories as well. Uh, but in particular, the ways that black women and girls have been historically outside of protection and what that means for efforts to protect and help survivors of sex trafficking. So many great nuggets are coming up. My yes. mind is racing with everything that you all have said. But I think um, I want to start by saying uh, I completely agree with what Bernice was pointing out in terms of this issue being a bipartisan issue. That has been my experience. I was at a conference about 10 years ago and was surprised that John McCain's wife was there and wanting to get involved in this issue and using her resources to get involved in this issue. But to take it a little bit deeper... What I will say is that if we're just looking at sex trafficking as the issue, then it's a bipartisan issue. Right? But if we're really looking at the, the causes and the historic oppression and the ongoing systemic oppression of women and girls and immigrants and failure to create safe cities for immigrants and anti-blackness, all of those things equal a failure to protect survivors of sex trafficking. So to your point about intersectionality, yes, it's a bipartisan issue if we're just talking about sex trafficking legislation specifically, but we're not. Um, and we're really talking about um, American politics and historic lockout of entire groups of people that is continuing to go on and is creating vulnerable victims in this country. So I, I just wanted to make sure that we rooted there and, um, uh, you know, have, have a little bit more of a robust discussion about the politics behind it. Um, so, you know, in terms of, of race, I think one of the biggest struggles in this past 20 years of doing this work, because I pivoted out of the police department and then went to Missy and, you know, have been doing the work from a community-based organizational um, perspective for the past almost nine years now. And the biggest challenge in this work has been getting folks, even other advocates in the movement, to have a racial justice analysis on the work. Because let's be, you know, frank, the gender-based violence movement in this country, generally speaking, has really been very white. Um, and so a lot of folks don't want to have a racial justice conversation because then it it's no longer a bipartisan conversation, right? And it's not, it's not as easy. It's not um, as, you know, a traditional um, feminist conversation. It requires um, an intersectional and black feminist analysis, to be quite honest, and, and a lot of folks are not comfortable with that. But if we're not having that conversation, then there's really no way for us to create solutions and interventions that make sense and that are effective. Because as we know, the storyteller... Um, wins the, wins the, wins the war, right? Because however we define the issue is how the solutions are crafted. And so if we're not defining the issue with a real focus on all of the intersections that are creating the vulnerabilities in the first place, then we don't really have real solutions that we can sink our teeth into. And I think that that's what we've been facing for the past 20 years. So I've been happy to see just around probably the past three to five years that there have been panels like this and the work of, of Dr. Nikki and, you know, folks that are willing to go there. But that really has been the biggest, one of the biggest hurdles in, in this conversation. And for those of you that are going to do your journalism work in the Bay Area, 
the Bay Area has very clear statistics um, that are coming out uh, often about who's identified as sex trafficking survivors, and those are extremely skewed towards black women and girls. Uh, it's extremely disparate, right? And I want to be clear that I'm saying identified because I also think that we're only identifying the tip of the iceberg. And the folks that are probably um, very invisibilized are immigrants uh, who don't trust the system at all uh, to talk, to identify themselves. And also, I definitely think LGBTQIA folks and, and men and boys for all the reasons that we could all, all probably think of. So... But when we're talking about identified victims, it heavily skews towards black girls, women and girls. And then I would say Southeast Asian and, and Latinx girls are next if we're talking about the Bay Area. And I would expand it to say in most urban cities across the country, you, you see that similar. And even in places that are fairly white, like Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places. I was there training um, that community on sex trafficking response intervention, and it was very similar, right? So I just wanted to just start us off with grounding in that hard reality that um, sex trafficking is not the issue. Sex trafficking is a symptom, Right, Sex trafficking is a symptom. And so as we're going into reporting, um, as you're trying to tell your story, you know, a complex analysis, I like how you're talking about the complexities, a complex analysis, in my opinion, that misses a racial justice conversation is missing the story and is really doing more harm than good. And I would say the same thing in your interactions with victims and survivors. If, if you're not, you know, going into it with that um, perspective and reflection on who you are, who you are, right? That's the first part of the work. Who are you um, in relation to this? What power do you hold? Um, and what they have probably experienced in their lives in addition to all of the, uh, you know, uh, suffering that we're all discussing that's related to sex trafficking. But in most cases, the suffering that's related to sex trafficking is you know, layered, is being layered on top of, like, you know, historical trauma, generational trauma. Um, and so it's, that's why it's complex trauma, because it is, like you were, were stating, it is, uh, you know, habitual, ongoing rape and abuse. And it's all of the other things that come along with being a part of a marginalized community in this country. And I want to stay with you for just one more moment because in the in the documentary film Still I Rise, it documents a moment where you recognize the failure of the criminal justice system in, in policing to address the problem of sex trafficking. And I wonder if that's something you would be willing to share, either that moment or what you see as the the failure to protect within that institution. And then I want us to to think about that across these institutional domains. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I had a few moments of, of really beginning to, to, you know, recognize the failures of the criminal justice system in many ways. But the first one was that we, you know, at the Oakland Police Department in the Bay Area, you know, a fairly diverse police department in relation to the rest of America's policing, uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, space for officer discretion, in terms of the ways in which they respond in the field. 
And particularly this was showing up with sex trafficking victims and children in missing children's reports. Because if a child is missing and is over 14, then it leaves the discretion to the officer on whether or not they're going to do an all-points bulletin call-out. Right? If the child is under 14, it's a mandate. It's an all-point bulletin. It's a call-out. No one goes home until you find the child. If the child is over 14, that allows for officer discretion. And what the officer discretion looks like in practice is um, the officers and the biases that they come with making a determination on victimhood, mm-hmm. right? And I would always say to my colleagues, you're using a Disney princess lens. You want her to be a Disney princess, white, <laughs> with access to resources, completely innocent, whatever that means in your eyes. And if she doesn't fit that description, which most <laughs> victims and survivors do not, then she doesn't get a call out and you're not classifying her as a victim or a survivor, right? And so that discretion inside the police department is I fought really hard for that discretion to be taken away from police officers because we were just seeing disparities in terms of black and brown girls going missing at 14 and 15 years old and nothing happening and everyone going home every night. And then we were seeing white girls from Montclair go missing and it was no one goes home. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. It's very similar to what we see in journalism and America's response and reporting to missing black women versus missing white women. It's the same dynamic. I mean, the police department was just a microcosm of everything else that's happening in society. And so that was happening. Um, the other thing I, the other thing I think is really important is that even when, um, they were able to somewhat recognize the victimization. The treatment was just still, it wasn't how you would imagine a victim or survivor would be treated and not how I saw, you know, traditional survivors of domestic violence and things like that treated. So, you know, the treatment was still problematic. And I hear, you know, folks constantly saying it's not a law enforcement issue, it's not a law enforcement issue, it really needs to be a public health issue, and that is 100% true, and I absolutely agree with that. And we pay the police a lot of money. I mean, we're, like, I'm from Oakland, and the law enforcement budget is, like, more than half of the city's budget, right? And so if we're paying an agency $350 million a year to serve and protect, then the expectation needs to be that they're at least trained to be able to do the entry-level work when they come in contact with victims and survivors, because oftentimes they're the folks that are out there at 3 a.m. in the, in the morning and, and they're coming into contact with folks. So I want to agree that it is a public health issue and that it's really a social issue, generally speaking. And I like what you said about it being a human rights issue. And we need to hold a very high expectation for law enforcement. We don't want them over-policing and criminalizing survivors. And we also don't want them washing their hands of serving and protecting black and brown 13-year-olds that are standing on International Boulevard every night. Thank you. Thank you. And so so just uh, uh, to touch back to the question, what does failure to protect mean uh, for each of you in the work that you do? And if you can also, you know, pull out the ways that intersectionality matters, including the intersections with uh, citizenship, which comes up in in each of your stories. So So, um, whenever I think about the failure to protect from, like, the American healthcare system standpoint, there's never a more stark example than how we respond to child abuse when it enters the hospital. So 
just a couple of weeks ago, I had a patient who was a victim of child abuse, um, this young girl who was in the foster care system. Her foster father came in with her. And we are mandatory reporters. Um, once we identify a child, we are then linking them with social work, with case managers. We involve C um, CPS. We involve the Department of Family and Health Services. There's literally two fellows who are, they got their fellowship in child abuse response, right? There is a framework for how we respond to child abuse in this country. And those guidelines, that framework just hasn't been translated to sex trafficking, which is just such a, it's such a missed opportunity to me. Like I was saying before, only 2% of hospitals in the U.S. have any sort of guidelines. And so when I was writing this story, it was, it was this real conflict of thinking like, okay, I'm saying there are all of these signs to look out for when you see a victim of sex trafficking, um, these potential like red flags. And of course, they're not comprehensive. They're People, people present in different ways. They present with different intersectionalities that we can't possibly know all of them. But even once they're identified, if we can't do anything for them, then what was that point of that identification process, right? That could actually just put a survivor more at risk. So if someone is currently being um, victimized by a trafficker, and then we write in the electric, electronic health record that they're a victim of sex trafficking, and that trafficker sees that electronic health record, like they have access to it, like they said they were their guardian or something like that. Did I just put that person in harm's way because I thought, oh, I was doing a good thing. I, I identified them. Good for me, a pat on the back, right? And so to me, this is such a systematic, systemic issue because we are simply unprepared. And what's so upsetting is that there's literally evidence. There's evidence for frameworks that might not work perfectly, but they're getting towards that direction. They're trying to figure out where can we find those social services? How can we involve law enforcement and criminal justice in a way that is not more traumatizing to these victims? Um, how can we ensure that they have long-term medical care, that they're able to get access to things like the trafficking visa or all of these different services? And it just doesn't exist. And I'm brought back to this this concept that is often talked about in medicine. It's called the 30-year uh, bench-to-bedside. And it's talking about the delay in time between um, basic discoveries being made in the scientific field and then when they're actually implemented into an FDA-approved therapy. But this also exists in the healthcare space and social determinants of health as well, where every time some law comes in that is talking about healthcare reform, it might take 30 years before we see the results of those findings or the results of that legislation in practice. So the TVPA, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, was just, um, it was in 2000. And so we're still within that 30-year mark. But what angers me so much is that the frameworks exist. It is not starting from scratch. There are ways for us to take that infrastructure and not necessarily repurpose it, but have it be more inclusive to include these survivors as well. And I think that failure is um, its very apparent to me when I think about issues like child abuse and elder abuse, domestic violence. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah. So failure to protect, I guess, looking first maybe at the um, hotel industry. Um, I think when you look at these lawsuits that I was describing earlier and you look at what the argument of uh, the hotel corporations is, is that actually it's not their responsibility. It's, it's because they are the franchisor. They oversee things like the thread count of the sheets, uh, what's served at breakfast, 
um, what position the shampoo bottle should be um, in the bathroom, but they do not oversee the day-to-day operations of each individual hotel. So if you want to take issue with there being uh, trafficking at a hotel, you should go to the hotel owner. Um, of course, uh, the, the hotel franchisor, the big chain, um, does oversee quality control. It does have an ability to dictate um, certain standards, including around safety if it chose to, um, through its franchise agreements. Um, but really, the, that's where things get stuck with the hotel industry is this kind of, well, who's whose job is it, really, to make sure that trafficking isn't happening? And I can tell you I, I, that the hotel corporations could know if they wanted to know um, because I'm aware that they collect information um, digitally uh, related to the bookings of each guest. So they know when people are paying in cash. They know when there are two rooms that are rented ne- right next to each other for weeks at a time. Um, they could know that there is um, a high rate of uh calls for police service to this particular hotel. There are a lot of ways where if they wanted to know, they could be more aware. But again, their legal position is that it is not their responsibility because they are the franchisor. So um, again, my question, my story asks the question, should they be held responsible? Um, and I think then there are beyond that, I think that you're going to have to think about legislative, legal uh, responses to create a situation where a franchisor would feel comfortable feeling more proactive is kind of the bottom line. But beyond that, I think um, there are still small things that came up through the reporting that could be done very easily if we wanted to be more proactive um, as, uh, you know, as the hospitality industry or even as, you know, everyday citizens. One is that um, hotels could routinely check the ID of everybody coming in, you know, to their hotel and making sure that everybody is, for instance, of age to rent a hotel room. Um, you know, some hotels are now doing wellness checks after three days with the kind of no disturb sign on, on the door, um, just making sure everybody's okay. Um, you know, I think, you know, Holly and I had a brief conversation before this one, and I think she made a really powerful point that there are, you know, those kind of administrative things that can be done. But really, at the end of the day, we have to also ask the question, why are people being groomed and succumbing to the coercion and, and the force and the fear um, to be trafficked in the first place? And if you look at the case studies of even the two women that were featured in, in the story that I wrote about um, the hotel industry, they were, they were, you know, living in poverty. They were coming out of foster care. They were, um, you know, had been sexually abused. They were, had been physically abused. They just had all the constellation of trauma and um, vulnerabilities that then, as uh, Elizabeth from the story pointed out, the, her, her pimps used and mined in order to pull her into uh, trafficking. So, um, you know, these are kind of big, mega, macro pictures and responses is that we have to, as Holly says, really think about um, why, how, how do we have more of a kind of systemic and institutional analysis of why all of these people are being pulled into trafficking in the first place. Um, I'll just also add, from a journalist perspective, what does a failure protect? I mean, obviously, if we we are always trying to minimize harm to our sources, um, 
in whatever way we can. And so my, you know, I think the biggest failure to be, to protect would be is, um, in this particular instance is if, um, the identity of the source, um, became apparent to a trafficker, um, that they were trying to remain, um, away from and, um, hidden from. So there was a lot of care, um, I'd like to think taken in this particular case to make sure that that didn't happen. Thank you. Yes, sure. Sorry, one question that I had about your story was, um, what are your sort of thoughts? Because I had a colleague had, who had written a story about how, is it Motel 6? Motel? Yeah. They said that um, hotel managers from Motel 6 were sending the list of the people who were living there to ICE. And they were saying that um, ICE would then come to the hotel and basically arrest and then deport undocumented immigrants. And I guess one thing that I was wondering when I was reading your story was, um, what are your sort of thoughts? Like, let's say we we ask hotel managers to be more involved, more accountable. But then what are sort of your thoughts with um, how that might put people who are like undocumented immigrants, other people at risk? Yeah, I thought about that a lot in terms of this kind of recommendation around asking everybody for their ID, right? I mean, then what if what if you don't have one, um, you know, or it would put you in this kind of situation where you would be outed and put at, um, you know, um, immigration risk for, in, for some reason. Um, I, I think that ultimately what the hotel operators need to do is is less, you know, trying to be in everybody's business. They, there is kind of a premium put on privacy in hotels that's, and, and, and the, in the hospitality industry in general. It's kind of why it's, it, it happens in hotels because we're supposed to leave people alone in their hotel rooms and whatever happens there is their own business. But, um, you know, I spoke to a um, security, uh, hotel security expert at uh, the extended stay hotels. And he said that one thing that they try to make very clear at every one of their hotels, and of course they're not always perfect, but is to make it clear that there is someone watching um, for at least in the hallways, at least in the lobby, um, and that they would be willing to report something that seemed really out of bounds. Um, so I don't think that we should be going in and ferreting out, you know, people and trying to get into their private lives. But if there's something overt, um, some of these cues that we've all, you know, we've just talked about, um, making it clear that that will not be tolerated at this particular establishment, um, this security expert seemed to believe that that would be at least a first step. Thank you. Yeah. Can I just say something? Of course. Yeah, I, I love the work that you did with hotels. Um, that hotel that I was talking about during my first undercover operation at 17th Avenue and International I, that I stood in front of, a few years later, uh, we ended up actually closing that hotel, working directly with survivors and community members in the San Antonio Park neighborhood in Oakland to close that hotel. And I actually went undercover to understand the hotel's involvement in the trade. And the owners and operators of the hotel were actually involved in the sex trade. So I think that that's another complexity. And then it happened. And so we successfully, um, with the city attorney's office, closed that hotel down and sued the owners. And then we replicated that same model and did it at another hotel that was similarly involved at um, 2nd Avenue and East 12th near the lake. And so I think that that's another complexity is that sometimes the people that were expecting to be responsible and it and it's legislatures 
judges, attorneys, um, are often involved in the sex trade themselves. And I, I learned that um, the hard way, really, in my advocacy efforts, we just kept running into so many blocks in terms of being able to um, put resources and legislation towards holding the demand side of this equation accountable. You know, folks were more comfortable focusing on how do we decriminalize survivors, how do we hold pimps more accountable, but when it came to conversations about how do we actually hold johns and purchasers more accountable, that became a conversation folks didn't want to have. And in my years, you know, posing as a working girl in interna on international um, <laughs> the, there's really no profile in terms of a purchaser. It was folks from all walks of life, all socioeconomic backgrounds, all races, all relationship status, etc. Like, I'm not exaggerating. We literally arrested a judge. We've arrested police officers and firefighters and pastors and etc. And so we're talking about, you know, kind of like the guy next door. And so there's really not a lot of accountability in terms of purchasers. And we know that, you know, demand is is driving a supply. So I just wanted to add that layer of complexity is that oftentimes, um, well, sometimes, I won't say oftentimes, sometimes the hotel owners and managers are also involved in the purchasing of women and girls. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm thinking about the power of stories and storytelling, right? Uh, I'm an ethnographer. One of my uh, mentors, the late Howard Becker, uh, told us that people remember stories. And I think that's why media and journalism is so important and so powerful. Uh, and you mentioned um, stories that you're confronting that live in people's mind, like the Disney princess uh, story. Uh, and in journalism, you're also, I imagine, confronting a gap. So your stories are so powerful, and in part because they are filling a gap or they're a corrective of some sort that doesn't exist uh, um, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in, in other spaces, in other outlets, perhaps. Uh, you can speak more about that. And I'm curious about the barriers to storytelling, right? So Bernice, you said, nobody wants you to tell it. And you can say that three times, right? Nobody wants you to tell it. And so what barriers do you confront? And how do you, how did you handle confronting those barriers and overcoming those barriers in the telling of, of this story? Um, so I'm, I'm so grateful to be here with Bernice and just to have been in her presence, but like, I'm a very early career reporter. So my immediate thought is always, I'm not the first journalist to be writing about this story. I'm certainly not going to be the last person to interview this person. And the worst case scenario is not that no one reads my story. It's that it hurts the people that I'm reporting and now they don't trust journalists anymore. Um, and so I would ruin that opportunity from someone like Bernice to, to be able to do a meaningful story that actually causes some some incredible sort of impact. Um, and so I think the the barriers for me was trying to, and I, I don't actually know that I followed all of the um, journalism editorial rules for this, but um, it, it at least followed my values. So um, throughout my reporting process, um, I was working with uh, one of the activists. She's a survivor activist. She leads this organization called Mentari in New York. Um, and I was working with her as well as other um, leader activists across the country. And basically, I would ask them, like, are there any people, any any women that you work with who would be willing to share their story? Um we did a very thorough, like, informed consent process, but we also said, 
in order to provide like essentially like a patient advocate in the room, we let every single woman that I interviewed have one of these survivor activists in the room with them. And so anytime they felt like, hey, I don't want to talk anymore, and but they didn't feel comfortable with telling that to me, saying like this interview is over or I don't want you to share this part of the story, they might have already had that relationship with her and she could tell me or we could end that interview short. Um, and so that was one of the things that we did uh, I also, like, I interviewed, like, maybe 35 survivors of trafficking. Two showed up in my final story. And the reason why I thought that was so, like, I think that's a really important thing is, um, and this is also through the help of the Pulitzer Center by providing me with essentially a grant to work on this for six months, is someone once told me never be too desperate. Like, make sure you do enough work so that at the last minute when you're close to your deadline, you're not just like, oh, a, someone dropped out of the story, but but I have to turn it in, right? I I wanted to be in a place where I was I felt comfortable enough with the amount of research I did, with the amount of reporting that I did, that if someone the day before, well, not the day before, but <laughs> like fairly close to when things are being edited, say, I'm no longer comfortable with you sharing my story, that I could be like, okay, well, thank you for at least providing background, right? Thank you for generally informing the, the many stories that will go into this. And we did have cases where that was the case. And hopefully, if they weren't comfortable in being my story, which is completely their prerogative, they might feel more comfortable being in someone else's story because they know that journalists have that sort of relationship. Um, and so that was something that was incredibly important for me. I don't know if that answered your question, though. Yeah. No, Holly or Bernice, if you want to respond to that question. Hmm. See barriers to the storytelling. Um, I have mentioned some of them from this particular story. I think um, you know locating the the survivors to share their particular experience, um, uh, getting to the point where they would really start to you know go on this journey with me over a period of time. I think the other thing about a lot of these stories is that they take months, sometimes a year. And so it's how do you set expectations, provide transparency, so that those very key sources are with you that entire journey. They're not giving up on you. They understand why you're taking so long. Um, their expectations are, are realistic about... Um, how they will appear in the story, what aspects of their story will, will be included, um, that we have lots of conversations around um, how to make sure that they stay safe as a result of the story being out in the world. And um, But I think also another very huge, uh, you know, very formidable challenge is when, when you're covering corporations, there's just often a black box these days. Um, you know, there's often even an, an unwillingness for the corporation to engage, um, even on an interview level. I've even seen a change in, in my career. There used to be at least, um, you know, the requisite, you know, no comment or response of some sort. Um, now it's just radio silence often or an off-the-record conversation that never leads to anything um, substantive. And that's, frankly, for me as a reporter, very frustrating because I am genuinely curious about the, the the realities and challenges that that particular entity might be facing. I'm always interested in what makes things more complicated and nuanced and gray. I don't believe in black and white stories. And so when the other, when one side of the story won't engage, it makes it incredibly challenging. We're having to fill it in and we're having to fill it in with documents that I got, you know, um, that I wasn't supposed to have, but was put out into the public record um, for, for, you know, a short period of time. And is that the full picture? No, but it's an, it's an, it's a view in. And unfortunately that was the only view I could get in. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Do you want to add to that, Holly? No, it sounds beautiful. I mean, I these ladies are doing incredible journalism. It's just come a long way. I'll say that. It's come a really, really long way from the early days of reporters calling me consistently and wanting to come out on, you know, ride-alongs because I was running the, ha the human trafficking unit in the early 2000s. Um, and I was, for a while, you know, very excited and engaged in wanting to work with these journalists. Some were local and some were national. Um, I mean, I, I won't name them, but yes, they were national. Mm -hmm. And just really became disillusioned because the story was always focused on just the salaciousness of sex and cops and busts, right? I mean, that, that was, those were the stories. And so I actually stopped engaging with journalists for quite some time. So I'm just really happy to see the work that you all are doing and the thought that's going into it and the care and the complexities of the stories that you're telling. Uh, the only thing that's popping into my mind uh, that seems important for me to say is that I see a lot of kind of debate and conversation around language and like how do we address, do we call her a victim? Do we call her a survivor? How do we, I think the best thing that I've learned is to ask her how she wants to be identified because some folks are in, at a point where they still feel like a victim and they want to be acknowledged as a victim. And again, going back to our racial justice analysis, I think especially for like black women, if she's in her victim stage and that's how she wants us to recognize her pain and her experience, skipping over to survivor very quickly can be silencing, mm -hmm. right? And because of America's history and the tropes about strong, angry black women, without an ability to hold vulnerability and full humanity, I think it's really important for us to just go with her own definition of how she sees her experience and how she sees herself at this moment. Thank you. And so I think we have about seven minutes or so, five minutes or so until, and so, was that? Six minutes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, and I want to... I want to uh, close this portion of it out with this question about care. It is clear you care about the people that you advocate for. Uh, I hear frustration. I hear anger. I hear grief and, and, and certainly encounter that in your stories. I think it's really useful, useful to acknowledge that for students and to share how you hold that and the strategies that you may have developed. I know I didn't do a good job of this when I was a younger assistant professor, and I have more strategies at my disposal now. Um, how do you deal with the secondary trauma of being exposed to these stories, either for a short period of time or you know, over the course of a career? So, sorry, as soon as you asked that, I like immediately had just like this very vivid flashback. Um, so one of my sources during the time like, so I reported on the story very heavily for six months, but kind of had been working on this issue for about four years um, since I was in journalism school, too. Um, and during my reporting, one of the women that I became very close to was killed during my reporting process. Um, and I think this is goes back to what I was saying is, like, put yourself in a position where you don't have to be too desperate. Um, she was just like such a cornerstone of that community, of not only providing support to so many people, so many survivors as well, but um, she was also an activist herself. And so when she died, um, the whole community was reeling. 
Um, it would have been very invasive and exploitative if I had gone in and said, well, let's do another interview. Or, well, what about this question that I'm missing? Can, you, can I call you just to confirm this quote? Um, so think, thanks to the Pulitzer Center, thanks to being able to do long-form journalism, just for having that time, which, you know, I, it makes me really sad when we're supposed to turn a story like talking about an issue like this within, like, what, two days? Insane. Um, but I, we took a month off of reporting on this story, and I was really lucky to have editors, both at the Pulitzer Center and the institution I was working for, for the freelance story, um, who not only saw the value in that, not only accepted that decision of ours, but um, consistently throughout the reporting process would challenge different aspects of how I reported things or what stories we were included um, and that conscientiousness. So I'm, I can't speak highly enough of this, but like be very careful about who you allow to mentor you. Be very careful about who you la- allow to guide your reporting um, and be very involved in what that final product looks like, um, whether it's what images are included, um, whether it's like the title. Oh, gosh, the, t- the number of times I fought over a title. Um, it all matters. It's all yours. Don't pass it off to anyone. This is your work. It's the work of a team. But at the end of the day, don't be the reason why another journalist cannot write about the story about this issue. I'll just make a quick plug for um, one of our colleagues here at the Berkeley Journalism School, Andrea, um, has just written, co-written a book called Graphic that gets exactly at this very topic of how do you deal with kind of secondary trauma and, and you know, in the context of looking at very graphic um, human rights violations. Um, so I encourage you all to check that out. Um, I personally um, have come to certain, use, you know, use certain coping mechanisms. Um, I have one of my uh, dear colleagues in the back there, Andres Sediel. We've gone through a lot of um, traumatic reporting together. I think there's something about having someone that you can talk to um, that's a little bit of a kind of release valve, whether it's your editor or somebody. Um, also, I watch a lot of cooking shows on YouTube. It's just the way, like, I, everybody needs to turn their brain off at some point, and whatever that way is for you, you got to find it and, and actually do it. Um, and I also choose to think about these as stories of resiliency. Um, you know, and I don't, and I think I, I take Holly's point absolutely that we shouldn't gloss over like that trope of like, oh, everyone is just strong because they figured this out. But there is something about that incredibly powerful human experience that you have with a source where they're sharing all of this with you and they have lived it and they're sharing it with you and they have made it through and they're still totally figuring it out and fighting their way through. But isn't that an incredible moment to share with somebody? It's so special. And so these moments where they can share with you and where you can listen and help just by listening, I, I, I motivates me forever to do these stories. Thank you. Yeah. Holly, if you want to share. Sure. I'll just be really brief. I think so many, you know, self-care strategies for sure, but just in terms of career longevity, because I've seen so many folks, brilliant, smart, beautiful people in this work burn out really quickly and leave it forever and and, and unable to engage in it. So for me, what has been really helpful is pivoting. 
right? People, my family says I have like nine work lives, but you know, I, I pivot, like I did the undercover work and then I did the investigative work and then I ran a nonprofit and then I focused on policy. Like how do you get at this issue from different angles? Because the day-to-day grind of doing the same thing from one angle for years and years, I think can wear away, right? It can really wear away. And so being able to pivot and learn new tools and think creatively about, you know, different ways to get at this issue has been my particular saving grace. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Oh, let's thank our panelists one more time. God, I totally didn't uh, glossed over Daffodil Altan too, another dear colleague who, like, you know, you got to have your core people that you can talk this stuff through with. Uh, yes. And I, I want to encourage us to take a breath and find our feet and find our bodies. I know, as I tell my students, some, you know, this uh, in some ways can be theoretical, and, and many of us are impacted by this in very real ways. And so take the moment if you need it. Uh, for students here, uh, there's a resource called Path to Care. And so if you feel like you need a, a resource to reach out to after today's event, or now or, or, or in the future, I'd recommend that as a starting point. Uh, and so now we're going to open it up to Q&A. I don't know if I'm the person or we have a Q. Me? Okay. All right. Down here. Yes. But oh, we're right here. Right here. Right here. And then we're going to come to you because I did see your hand. Yes. Hi. Um, my question is more tailored to Bernice, but I feel like all of you guys could answer it. Um, and do you think, because in your story, you say that like a lot of victims don't see themselves as such based off of the trauma and such. Um, so do you think writing helps them see that? That there, it's more than just a product of life that it isn't and that it helps them move forward? Or like, how do you navigate that when they don't see that, but you do? That's a really great question. I think in some ways, and like Holly said earlier, I kind of use the terminology and I meet them where they are with it. So uh, the, the sources in this particular story, one of them was at a point where she was 10 years out. She had like done a lot of work. She saw herself as a survivor. The Elizabeth was beginning to see herself as someone who had been exploited and was in a, in a space where she could articulate it in a deeply profound way, um, but was still in process. So I, you know, I really just, I, I just listened and, um, and really took cues from her, um, and tried not to define anything for her. Um, she knew, obviously, by filing this lawsuit that she was bringing a grievance, that she was trying to push back on on this industry, on hotels, and that she had been wronged in some way. But, you know, this, this idea that she had been a trafficking victim or becoming a trafficking survivor was still definitely something she was in the middle of. And, yeah, we just, we just let it be what it was. One of the things that we learned at Missy was to your point about like does a reflective process or kind of a, a safe holding space support deeper uh, reflections about their experience? One of the things that we learned at Missy is we were doing um, transformative education and really politicizing 
survivors, right? We're politicizing folks. Like once they had their basic needs met, because we had a drop-in center, we had case management, we had systems navigation, kind of all the traditional social services, but we also had transformative education. And so instead of trying to tell folks about what their own experience was, we were really talking broadly about historic oppression and political realities in this country. And that was supporting their reflection and reframing of their circumstances because a lot of folks were internalizing their oppression and really using the language of the system to your point about um, her, her beautiful comment about seeing her story written from your lens as opposed to seeing it in a police report. You know, if, and so I've had many, many girls tell me that I always thought I was a hoe because that's what everybody said I was. The cops, the system, my social worker, the child welfare, like the pimp, everybody told me that I was a hoe. And so then once you start to really have a conversation about like this was like how is the system set up? How is the system rigged for your family and generations of your family to be in this situation where the only choice feels like these things? Then the clarity starts to come around this isn't actually my fault or my choice, and it's also not my mama's fault <laughs> and my mama's choice, and it's not, you know, those types of things. So uh, we were really invested in this, this idea of transformative education and offering, like, political education to our young people at Missy for that reason. Thank you. And that was making me think if I can just add that one thing that came up in our conversations with my conversations with Elizabeth was that she didn't feel judged, so I, I try to go into every conversation that way, you know, just totally open book. Like, I don't, I have no judgment for you. I'm here to listen to your story. And I think that helped a lot. Hi, my name is Agni. And um, so I have reported on human trafficking from back in India. And um, one of, like, they, the human, uh, they, like, the minors, basically, they're like, um, they have suffered a lot of, like, social and societal and legal hurdles to getting their cases uh, being brought to court. And one of the uh, problems they faced was that um, they couldn't, like sometimes their cases were lodged in another state because they were tra uh, trafficked from one state to another. So they did not have the transportation um, fee to like travel from one state to another. And, um, I, um, and I read in a newspaper that last month, Governor Newsom, uh, Newsom sorry, um, he passed a bill that uh, students from co in colleges and universities in America will, in California, sorry, will be able to um, be, a f be able to have a free transportation from and to from sexual assault treatment centers. So the more I see of the world, I feel like the more the problems remain the same to varying degrees. And so I feel like uh, what how do we do justice to our stories? How do we do justice to uh, the survivors to like, you know, bring their stories to the front and like to uh, bring about a structural change? You know, this question of, of impact, you know, of journalism is something that I've been talking um, to my colleagues quite a bit about lately. Um, and I think it's something that I think the industry is talking about quite a bit right now. I think we've been steered in the direction of thinking that we can have impact um, immediately because that's what uh, fuels award applications and um, often is really um, uh, looked favorably upon by donors. Um, but I think the reality is we are writing stories that will hopefully create change incrementally. You know, that no one single story is going to be the panacea and, and kind of solve the problem. It's got to be, you know, 
baby step by baby step, story by story. And um, I think we c- all we can do is just tell those truths. And hopefully it starts to seep into culture, into the ether, into as many brains as possible. And and that shift starts to happen. But I think it is frustrating if we're, exe- if we're expecting a law to change or a policy to change or someone to get fired every single time we write a story. I just don't think that's realistic. I think it's about that incremental, you know, iterative um, coverage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do either of you want to add to that? Yeah, I think towards your point, um, I feel like one thing that I really sort of was terrified of is human trafficking just seems such, it's just such an overwhelming topic, right? Like it affects so many people from different backgrounds. It affects the legal system, the immigration system, things, conversations about abortion. So many controversial topics are touched upon when you discuss sex trafficking. And as someone with clinically diagnosed anxiety, um, I recognize that when you make an issue that big, like we're trying to install more complexity, more nuance into the story, that it can also seem completely intimidating for any reader. And I think one thing, like we were saying before, that was really helpful was being able to say, no, there's literally frameworks that have existed for other things. So like you were saying, where they were providing free transportation um, to uh, victims of sexual assault so that they could go and seek care similarly like those are things that we that are translatable that are transferable and i think once you put these topics into the space like no we've we've kind of been here before there are avenues for how we can do this i think it becomes more digestible so that you bring out the complexity but you also say no like there are things that we can do there are actionable things that we can do and i think that is motivating to people but it also provides um, a new dimension to that nuance as well Yeah, I would just very briefly add that as journalists, to Bernice's point, telling that real story from the survivor's perspective is so critical because we don't have to hold the weight of the solutions on our shoulders because what I've learned the hard way is that the survivors actually know the solutions. Like they know what they need. We don't have to make it up, right? So in addition to, in addition to utilizing frameworks that exist for other things, there's also this very real idea that survivors have the answers to this, to, to this issue and to their own individual healing. And so I think like that lifts a weight off my shoulders too, because then my responsibility is not like, how do I solve everything. It's really like, how do I build deep relationships with survivors and then use my power and positionality to amplify their voices? And as journalists, you have the perfect opportunity to do those things as these two ladies have done. Okay, so my name is Cecile. Okay, one second. I think think we had one follow-up and then we're going to go back to you. um, Just to her point as well, I think one thing that you should also recognize that survivors are not just here to provide that story of trauma. Um, Like they're activists They're They experience, they have so many moments to talk about resilience and joy or literally any other part of their lives. So I think one of the big things that makes me really frustrated with a lot of stories related to sexual violence is that the survivors only used as a vehicle for depicting trauma. And I think being as cognizant of that and trying to incorporate the many facets of their lives, the many facets of their advocacy work is so important to the story as well. That's great. Thank you. Okay. So my name is Cecile. Um, So uh, basically what I'll be talking about, I have a couple of points here, but I'll try to 
as much as possible, put it all together. Um, the issue of sex trafficking drives home to me because I'm from Nigeria and my home state in Nigeria is said to be one of the primary states uh, where these sex traffickers in Nigeria come from. So we have a lot of these stories. Some have returned and they are willing to share the story. And you know, the funny thing about it is that many of those who were trafficked are now being the traffickers. So, and uh, you go back, you go home. You, someone, we talked about the root cause of this problem. Back home, one of the major causes would be poverty. Now you hear the parents tell, tell their daughter, there's a thin line now between a sex worker and a trafficker. Because now you think that this person is being trafficked, but the person is willing to do it. The parents, the parents tell their daughters, go and do it. Because when this, the others who have gone before them, when they come back, they build beautiful mansions. They have made money. So it's a thing of pride now to the parents back home. So they encourage their daughters to go and do these things. So you now wonder, is it trafficking now? Or are they just going there as sex workers? Because they still have the whole cartel. They have the chain. They have the godfather who takes them and brings them from one point to another. So when we talk about hotels, hotels, many hotels indeed are compromised, especially maybe some of these global brands, for instance. I'll give you my personal story. I traveled out of my country. I went somewhere else. Along the line, I lost my passport. I had to go to the Nigerian embassy. This is the problem I'm having. Oh, they attended to me very well. They gave me a hotel room. I locked the hotel. You know, the what's it called now? The chain? I locked it. So at about after midnight, around 2 a.m., I saw someone open the door of my hotel room. And I'm wondering, I signed my name into this room. Who else would have the, who else would have the key? The next morning, the, uh, the officer who actually helped me get the room said, Oh, I came to check on you at night to be sure that you are okay. And I went like, are you for real? So if I had not locked the door from inside, he would have had access into my room. So after then, I was very scared. Now, some hotels, like the, uh, there's a particular hotel I know back home in Nigeria, one of the global brands, in an effort to try to stop um, sex workers from coming in, because the sex workers go into the hotel, they are the lobby, trying to see how they can get customers or patrons. So the hotel decided that any single lady coming into the hotel, unaccompanied by a man, cannot go into the hotel. I wasn't aware of that. I went to the hotel. They said, sorry, you cannot enter. I said, I don't understand. They said, you have to be accompanied by a meal. I was like, how? Since when? From where? They said, well, that's a company policy. I showed them my ID. They said, I'm sorry, madam. There's nothing we can do about it. You need to call a man from outside to get you in. And I wondered, like, how do, where and how does that even happen? So I'm going to pause you there because I want the panelists to be able to uh, respond in, Thank in, you. in some way in the time that we have. And, and I think that the, the, the point that you, all of it is quite um, provocative and, 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 and thought-provoking. And that point that you started with, I wonder, um, and, and because anyone who's done this work understands how those roles might shift over time, uh, and it can look almost consensual, right? And the coercion kind of gets lost. And so I wonder if, if there are ways that you could talk about that and how we can It's extremely complex. I think we probably need a whole nother panel, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> um, I'll try to answer just with a few examples. I, I think um, first, first I want to say 
from, you know, a public health perspective, the kind of legal transition that happens from, you know, a child being trafficked to now you're 18 and you're, you know, you're consenting. From a public health perspective, the trauma is the same, right? So I want to just acknowledge that. Like, the, the trauma is still going to be the same. It becomes very difficult and complicated from a legal perspective when we have to deal with it in that manner. I mean, that that's what I found in my work at Missy. Going from policing where everything was looked at through a legislative lens and, you know, the California Penal Code and having to categorize people and their behavior um, was really, you know, very... It was it was focused on that. When we got to Missy, and it was about social services, it mattered less, like what transitions and when people turned eighteen, and you know whether or not they were coerced to recruit other girls, because that's really a part of the trafficking. It's a part of the trauma, and almost every girl that I've ever talked to, at some point, has been asked and coerced into recruiting other girls into the trade. I mean, because an exploiter knows that even, you know, moms that are struggling to parent have at least told a 13 or 14-year-old girl not to trust strange men, right? And so that's, that they know that. And so they're going to use another 14-year-old girl to recruit the girls, whether it's in foster care or in our after-school program or in the classroom. And that's just really common part of the abuse. And so in Missy, we didn't really pay attention to that specifically as um, you know, different than the rest of the trauma and the exploitation. But at the police department, it would become an issue because when you're, you know, running an investigation and the district attorney is saying, well, you're telling me that this person is a victim in this case, but she was doing all of these things, then you have to provide expert testimony in, in, a, in a courtroom to try to explain to a jury why this is just part of the exploitation, right? And And to add another layer of complexity, I would say, um, and I talk about this in the film, Still I Rise, is the moment when I actually realized um, that the exploiters have the same background as the victims in most cases. It's just a gendered manifestation of the same trauma, right? And I realized that when, after doing the work for so long, sometimes your brain is, you know, only able to take in what it can take in. So I'm, you know, a little embarrassed to tell you all how long I'd been doing the work when this really clicked for me in a concrete way, but it's what happened. And I was in the middle of an investigation and I just interviewed like a 14 year old girl and she had laid out her entire childhood experience. And I had access to the database and was able to see the child protective services reports and all of that. And everything that she told me about the neglect and abuse from age four on was all documented in there. And I left that, like, obviously feeling really raw from that interview. And I walked in, you know, <laughs> a couple rooms down, ready to interview the suspect because he was in custody. And I was like, yeah, I'm taking him down. You know, I was like really – because when I was a, a police investigator, I was very much um, focused on putting exploiters in prison. I, that's what I was before this day. And I walked into the room, and a kid looked up at me. And he was 22 years old, but he looked 16. A black boy with a baby face. And a kid, a scared kid, looked up at me. And I sat down at the interview table, and he told me the same story. And it wasn't rehearsed. And I went to the database and looked at the same child protective and social services history that she had. And that moment, 
was another disorienting dilemma and changed the course of my career, right? I was no longer the hard investigator that was specifically just committed and focused on putting people under the prison for double digits. And that eventually led to me leaving the police department and, and working at Missy. But it gets very complicated, right? To your point about families being involved and and, and that's why we're saying, you know, the complex social justice analysis is really important because we are literally putting people in situations in which they believe that the underground economy is the only way to survive. And so people are making really difficult choices, you know, that, that we can have a whole other conversation about the, the word choice and what that really looks like. But I'll stop there and see if anyone else wants to add on. Oh, okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> That, uh, just to, to respect the, the time, because I, I saw that the, there, there's some disjuncture between, okay, and so, but I'm getting this sign. But I do want to give our panelists, I want to say a, a thank you. I don't want to give them an opportunity for a final comment, something that they want to leave the audience with briefly, and then we will give them their due thanks, and then we will move to a reception. One comment that you would want to leave this, this, this group with, one thought. I think like the theme of this conversation has been don't be afraid of complexity, lean into it, right? Um, Also, be aware of how you're contributing to that literature, right? Like I was saying before, if you look up Google imagery of what sex trafficking looks like, it is very narrow-minded. Don't get me wrong, definitely those images are included in the conversation, but it's very narrow, and I think it's out of a desire socially for us to be able to divide things into black and white and not lean into the gray. Um, and so I think really, really try to figure out how you're adding to that conversation, um, how you're dispelling myths. Like I think one of the hardest parts of my reporting process was figuring out how to do photographs for it. I'm not a photographer. I'm not a storyteller that uses visual media. Um, and I didn't want to provide photos that's like forced a survivor to be looking like they were traumatized or any sort of this thing, which is like the kind of image you see. And so what we ended up doing was just asking every survivor, like, what is something you do most days? Let's go there. Let's just take a photo. So um, my main photo of the main person that I was interviewing, it's a a photo of this woman named Margot, and we were just walking her um, guide dog. So she's blind, and it's a, a result of uncontrolled diabetes throughout the time she was being victimized. So she ended up getting diabetic retinopathy. She ended up, um, uh, yeah, losing her sight. And so the photo of her is just her walking her dog. And a lot of people, the response to that story was all of these past photos of Margot had been with her in just like this very stylized, sensationalized backgrounds with very dim lighting, um, you know, like that overlay filter that they love to use whenever they talk about various crises. Um, But it was just like, it kind of just looked like a happy vacation family photo. And she was just like, that's how I feel right now. Like, that's where I am in my life. And why is that photo not as moving as another photo that is deeply traumatic? Why isn't why can't that be part of the portfolio of imagery that we use when we think of survivorship? Um, so, yeah. I think. yeah. And I did notice that in the photo, so I'm yeah, glad that you mentioned looks that. Great. So I guess I would um, encourage everybody to, as Isabella put it, lean into the nuance and lean into the complexity. I think sometimes when we're thinking about journalism, we're thinking about what's the news that's breaking? What is the news? Mm-hmm. Trafficking's been happening forever. 
How is this news? How is this an investigation? And actually, my question is, why is it still happening? So that, that's, the, that's the reporting question. And that's the opportunity to really investigate the systemic and structural problems that facilitate and enable this to continue happening. So there is a story there. There's an investigation to do as long as this is happening. I just want to say thank you. And just looking around the room at all of the diversity in the room is really inspiring. And I'm I'm just so excited for you all to kind of hit the street and hit the beat. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Another round of applause, please, for our panelists. And our moderator, thank you so much. And uh, to all of you as well, and I saw a lot of hands go up, and we didn't get to all the questions. So we do have time now. I know some of you may have to go to class or have other obligations, but those of you who can, please... You just should. Don't go to class. No, don't. That's being recorded. I apologize. Um, but please stay, mingle, talk to folks. We've got some refreshments in the back. So thank you again for joining us and for this evening, the second half of our gender forum at 545. Uh, we'll have Michelle Goldberg and Dean uh, Gita Anand in conversation about democracy, authoritarianism, gender, race, and identity in the U.S. So please join us if you can. Thank you. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.